Good morning, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us online here for worship today at the Vista. If we have not met before, my name is Austin Fisher. I get to serve here as one of our lead pastors. And if you are a part of our Vista family, man, we, we miss you terribly. I miss seeing your faces. I mean, I love these four cameras I get to preach to, but it's not the same as having you all in the room. And so we will gather again and find ways to gather again as soon as it is safe and right and responsible. Uh, if you're tuning in and you're not a member of the Vista family, we're just so glad that you felt comfortable inviting us into your home today and you, uh, you're an honorary part of the Vista family today. So welcome everybody. Last week, we wrapped up a three-month-long journey through a book of the Bible, a letter actually known as 1 Corinthians. And so today, we are starting a brand new series, a brand new series called Beautiful, Terrible World. I really like the title of this series. And in it, we're going to spend a month walking through the book of Job. And I wanted to briefly explain why we're going through this book now. Um, this situation <clears throat> in which we currently find ourselves, right, where a, uh, a microscopic, invisible, you know, bacteria has so fundamentally altered life on planet Earth. Okay, this situation is probably the strangest situation that any of us will ever live through. Unless you're like abducted by aliens one day, or maybe you've already been abducted, whatever the case. If that's you, fine. But all the rest of us, this is the weirdest situation we will ever live through. And here's the thing about strange, weird situations. Uh, strange situations tend to put pressure on us. You've probably felt it over the last month. I know I have. And pressure tends to tell us the truth, right? When we're put under pressure, we discover what we're really made of. We discover hidden flaws, hidden weaknesses. And while that's not a particularly pleasant experience, I know I've discovered a lot of hidden flaws in myself over the last month. It's very humbling. It is, however, very, very important because we need to know the truth about ourselves. And that brings us to the book of Job. <clears throat> the book of Job is uh, in many ways, and for my money, uh, the most interesting and extraordinary book in all of Scripture. <clears throat> the book revolves around a series of enormous questions, questions that humans ask ourselves on a daily basis, even when we're not aware that we're asking them. Questions like, uh, why do bad things happen to good people? Uh, why is there so much suffering? Like, why doesn't God do more? Why do some children die before they can walk? while Hitler gets 56 years. Why did God create this kind of world and how do we find our way faithfully in it? Okay, and so the Bible as a whole, <clears throat> it's filled with uh, these questions and attempted explanations to these questions. But the singular genius of Job is it takes all these different questions and explanations and it puts them into a conversation with each other and thus it puts them through the ultimate stress test. Because no matter how smart or sincere or biblically enlightened we are, we nevertheless believe many things about God and God's ways in the world that simply are not true. Right, I'll say that again. No matter how smart or sincere or biblically enlightened we are, we nevertheless believe many things about God and God's ways in the world that simply are not true. Now, that's the bad news. The good news is that the story of our friend Job was placed in the Bible 
to expose our cheap answers and our false beliefs so that we can make friends with the mysteries that lie deep down at the heart of things. And so now, before we jump in, I want to give you a brief kind of outline so we got the lay of the land as we walk through this book. There are 42 chapters in Job, and we've actually got a reading plan for all 42 chapters that is included in our Pause and Pray Challenge. We've been telling you about that. It's a way to structure our days in a weird season where we don't have a lot of structure around prayer. And so if you do our Pause and Pray Challenge, which you can find on our app or online, then you will read through all 42 chapters of Job together as a Vista Church family. So make sure that you do that. Uh, The book is probably best divided into four main sections. There should be a little slide down here somewhere that will show those to you. Uh, Section one is the sad and strange story of Job's devastation. So that's chapters one through two. We'll talk about that today. Section two is a series of arguments about why this has happened between Job and his friends. That's chapters three through 37. Section three is God responding to all this from a whirlwind. Right? That's chapters 38 through 41. And then finally, the last section is Job then responding to God's response. That's chapter 42. Okay, so hopefully that helps us orient ourselves to the book. And so with no further ado, let's, uh, let's begin at the beginning. All right, Job 1. The book of Job is right before Psalms, so it's very easy to find. Job 1, we'll start off with verses 1 through 5 here. And again, it should be on the screen right here. It says, There was a man in the land of Uts whose name was Job, and that man was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. Now seven sons and three daughters were born to him. His possessions also were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. And that man was the greatest of all the men of the East. Now his sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When the days of feasting had completed their cycle, Job would send and consecrate them, rising up early in the morning and offering burnt offerings according to the number of all of his children. For Job said, perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts, so I want to make sure they're covered. Thus, Job did continually. Okay, so it's verses one through five. So the book starts off with this fantastic sentence. Okay. There was a man in the land of Uts whose name was Job, and that man was blameless. And when we hear this sentence, we're meant to hear something like, uh, you know, once upon a time, or better yet, uh, long, long ago in a galaxy far, far away. You see, the, uh, the land of Uts was this mysterious land that the original Israelites, who were reading the book of Job originally, did not know anything about. And so it has the effect of signaling that this story that they're about to hear, man, it's from someplace else, someplace you've never been. It's not like any story you have ever heard before, okay? So you better buckle up. So long, long ago in a galaxy far, far away, there was a man named Job, and that man was blameless. Does that mean he was perfect? Of course not. You know, nobody's perfect, but rather it means that he's a good and just and righteous man. It means God loves Job and is pleased with Job. And as we walk through the book, this is one of the most important and challenging things to remember, okay? Job is blameless. Very first sentence of the book tells us that. Now, are you gonna be able to remember that Job is blameless? I know you think you will, but I'm warning you, you're going to be tempted to blame Job. But remember, the very first sentence of the very first uh, verse of the book reminds us Job is 
blameless, okay? So the story begins with complete serenity, you know, this blameless man living a blessed life. But then as in all good stories, things begin to take a bit of a turn here in verse 6. So we'll pick it back up in verse 6. Read through verse 21. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan, or the accuser, also came in among them. And the Lord said to Satan, hey, from where do you come from? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. The Lord said to Satan, well, have you considered my servant Job? For there's no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man. He fears God. He turns away from evil. He's a great guy. Then Satan answered the Lord and he said, well, you know, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions. You've increased them in the land. But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has and he will surely curse you to your face. Then the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. Now, on the day when his sons and his daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans attacked and took them. They also slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Now, while he was still speaking, another servant came up and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Now, while he was still speaking, another also came and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands and made a raid on the camels and took them and slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Now, while he was still speaking, another also came up and said, Your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house and it fell on your children and they died. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head and he fell to the ground and he worshiped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and now the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's Job 6, Job 1, verses 6 through 21. So, to state the obvious, um, this is a pretty odd series of events. And you probably have some questions, right? I know I do. Uh, Verse 6 starts with this scene that's probably best described as some kind of heavenly council meeting. You know, God calls together his heavenly council of angelic beings and he wants a report. You know, he's like, hey, you've all been on the earth. What's going on? Give me the skinny. You've had your ear to the ground. What's happening on planet earth? And uh, in this heavenly council meeting, there's one figure who is called in Hebrew, Ha-Satan, or as he will later come to be known as Satan, right? You can hear the resonance there, Ha-Satan, Satan. And he's been roaming around the earth looking for accusations to make because that's what he does. And he's got this accusation to make against Job. He says, yeah, you know, Job's a great guy. No doubt about it. Great guy. But he's only a great guy because being a great guy has been so good for business. I mean, God, look at all the great things you give him for him being a great guy. And so here's what I promise you. You take away all of his stuff, God, and you'll see what Job is really made of. You take away all of Job's stuff, and I promise you that he will curse you to your face. And so God agrees to the bet. Satan leaves the heavenly council meeting. He goes out and he destroys 
Job's life. He takes everything from him. His wealth, his livelihood, and all 10 of Job's children gone, just like that. Job started the day, man, a wealthy man with resources and a secure future. And he has ended the day a poor man with no resources, a ruined life, and a profoundly precarious future. And in response to this total devastation, what does Job do? And he, he falls to the ground and he worships. Okay, this is verse 21. It's one of the most beautiful verses in all the scripture. Job says, the Lord gave to me and now the Lord has taken away. But either way, blessed be the name of the Lord. It's unbelievable. And so at this point, right, Job, he's, he's passed the test. He lost everything. He hasn't cursed God. But Satan, the accuser, he's still not convinced and so at the next heavenly council meeting, he's got a new accusation to level against Job. He says, yeah, okay, Job passed that test, but here's the deal. You take away his health, you take away his health, then you'll see what he's really made of. You take away his health, and I promise you, God, he will curse you to your face. And God, again, agrees to the bet. I mean, are you kidding me? You're going to do this to this guy again? God agrees to another bet with Satan about this. Satan goes out, and he strikes Job with boils from the crown of his head to the very soles of his feet. And yet again, Job refuses to curse God. Right? This is Job chapter 2, verse 10. Job says, Shall we indeed only accept good from God and not adversity? And so we're left with this heartbreaking image of Job, this, this blameless man who was living a blessed life, who did nothing to deserve this, whose beautiful and blessed life has now been reduced to ashes. And so what in the world are we supposed to make of all this? Right? I mean, like God, God making bets with Satan? Is that what's going on up there? Really? God making bets with Satan? Uh, a good man's life ruined for no apparent reason? Job's perfect? And maybe too perfect response to losing everything? Well, remember I told you on the front end that the story of Job is a story that puts pressure on our faith. Like, can you feel it right now? I could feel it. And so instead of trying to relieve that pressure, what we need to do is sit with it so that it can crush all of our illusions and all of our false beliefs and give us a faith that has been forged in the furnace of reality instead of in faith fairytale land. And the first pressure point that the story of Job puts on us is that Job tells us the truth. And that may not seem like a... Um, particularly profound thing to you. But I would submit that it's profoundly profound because we live in a culture where the truth is very, very hard to come by. Perhaps you have noticed that. We live in a culture that is saturated with relentlessly pessimistic PR on the one hand and then relentlessly optimistic PR on the other hand. Right? We live in a culture that fluctuates spasmodically between the utter depression of the news and then the utter superficiality of perfectly filtered Instagram feeds filled with perfect stories of perfect people living their perfect lives with perfect children in a perfect world. And so in a PR culture like ours, built upon the denial 
of reality built upon both pessimistic and optimistic lies. Here comes the story of Job reminding us how to tell the truth. The truth that the world is a beautiful, I mean, look outside, the world is a beautiful and a terrible place, both at the same time. Now, as you probably remember from some science class that you had at some point, the axis of the earth is tilted, meaning as we spin around the sun, we don't do so perfectly upright, you know, not perpendicular, but rather we spin around the sun at a 23.5 degree angle. And the earth's tilted axis is is very important. It's the reason we have our seasons. You know, as we spin around uh, the sun on our tilted axis, uh, every part of our planet spins some time closer to the sun. We call those seasons spring and summer, like what we're entering now. And it also means every part of our planet spins some time further away from the sun. We call that fall. We call that winter. Uh, And this is what creates the beauty and diversity that we see exhibited, you know, in like mountains and deserts and rainforest and beautiful central Texas hill country. Our tilted axis is the reason some people are, you know, snow skiing in the Alps right now. I mean, not right now. We're all sitting on our couches right now. But like metaphorically speaking, why some people could be snow skiing in the Alps while other people could be sunbathing in the Bahamas at the exact same time is the reason that our planet is such a stunningly lively, livable and beautiful place. But do you know how we got our tilted axis? Because it's, uh, it's kind of a scary story. So kids, gather around. I, Pastor Austin is going to tell you a, a scary story about how the earth got its tilted axis. Well, many, 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 many years ago, uh, the earth collided with another planet called Theo. And that collision, that planetary collision was so violent that it literally knocked the earth off of its axis. The earth was spinning perfectly upright going around the sun. It collides with Theo and all of a sudden it's revolving now at a 23.5 degree angle. All that to say our tilted axis is the cause of the tremendous beauty and diversity that we see here on planet earth. And yet that tilted axis resulted from a cosmic collision that was so incredibly violent that if it happened again, it would instantly incinerate every beauty and speck of life on planet Earth. And that brings us actually back to the sun. Uh, The sun, you know, the sun is this blazing inferno of energy, this star that sources the swarm of liveliness that covers our planet. The sun is the reason we can do all the things that we love to do. The sun is the reason we can, you know, sing songs and climb mountains and bake bread and make margaritas and make love. You name it, man. The sun allows us to do it every single time you walk outside. An array of sunlight comes down from 63 million miles away and hits you. It's like God is reminding you, hey, you down there, I want to remind you that I want you to exist. And not only do I want you to exist, but I want you to enjoy existing. Nothing is more beautiful than the sun. But while our sun is beautiful, it's also a dying star. And as it slowly dies, it will gradually grow bigger and bigger and bigger 
and bigger until about five billion years from now, it will literally swallow up the earth. When you look up there, you see the sun, 63 million miles away. Well, it's going to grow so big that it'll get closer and closer and closer and closer until it swallows us up one day. Barring some sort of divine intervention, the earth will literally be devoured by the sun. The sun is our best friend that will one day turn into our executioner. Nothing is more terrible than the sun. And we could go on and on and on here from the cosmic to the microscopic to everywhere in between. All creation declares divine glory. That's what Psalm 19 verse 1 says. It does. All creation does. And yet all creation also declares relentless cruelty and suffering and death. You know, a star dies in a violent planet-killing explosion in the far reaches of the galaxy. And a billion years later, my little girl smiles for the first time because God used that stardust to bring her to life. And that sounds ridiculous. Now, it sounds like something out of a sci-fi novel or poetry or something, but it's not ridiculous. It is the honest to God truth. The world really is that beautiful. We really are stardust. Literally, we are made from stardust. Babies really are that cute. Forgiveness really is that healing. The world really is that beautiful. And the world really is that terrible. 8,000 Americans will die today. Not because of coronavirus, but because 8,000 Americans die every single day. On Easter Sunday two weeks ago, you know, we celebrated the outrageous joy of the resurrection. And on Easter Sunday, there were 8,000 funerals. Just like there are 8,000 funerals every Easter Sunday. And at this point, you know, you, you might be wondering when I'm going to start spinning things towards some sort of pleasant explanation and resolution. And I I hate to disappoint you, but there will be no pleasant explanations today because how are you going to explain something that you don't really understand? And I fear that's where our PR culture has left us, you know, operating there on the surface of life, unable to grasp either its deep beauty or its deep terror. And so let's contrast here our very thin PR culture with the severe realism we find in the Bible. Because the Bible's filled with dark moments. I mean, there's a whole book of the Bible called Lamentations, lament being the operative word there. And it's basically a book filled with the saddest poetry you have ever heard in your entire life. And a Dale Breakup album has nothing on Lamentations. And yet the Bible's not a pessimistic book because even its darkest moments are filled with these anticipations of some kind of redemption. And the Bible is filled with happy moments, like the happiest moments you can imagine. Like, I don't know, the resurrection is a pretty happy moment. It is pretty hard to top. But the Bible is not like an optimistic book. You wouldn't walk away going, oh, that was so optimistic and nice, because the Bible knows that resurrection only comes after crucifixion because scripture knows that every human will suffer and sin and die. And so instead of these superficial spasms between pessimism and optimism, depending upon how your day is going, depending upon how the wind's blowing, depending upon how the stock market's going, instead of that, what we see in scripture is this deep grounding in both grief and hope, which are very different experiences. 
So let me say that again. Instead of fluctuating back and forth between pessimism and optimism, what we find instead in Scripture is this deep grounding in grief and hope. And what we find here in the story of Job's devastation is a challenge to just sit and grieve the world's deep sadness. It's to feel how deep it really runs, which is easier said than done for for a lot of us because, you know, we are the most in-debt, obese, addicted, and medicated people in the history of the world. I mean, we've literally created whole markets around finding ways to numb ourselves from the beauty and terror of being a human. In our initial um, church-wide response to the pandemic, um, I, I hope that you noticed that we avoided both pessimism and optimism. I mean, we, we avoided saying the sky was falling, you know, and this is the end. But we also avoided saying, hey, there's nothing to worry about here because it'll all be okay. Because really, how are you going to say it's all going to be okay? How do we know that it's all going to be okay? What does that even mean? I mean, I guess it depends on what you mean when you say it's all going to be okay. I mean, are you going to die of coronavirus? Well, seeing as how you live in central Texas, that is, that is highly unlikely. But will you die? Well, I hate to break it to you, but that is highly likely. Scientists put the number somewhere between 100 and 100% chance of you dying one day. And so in addressing this as your church leadership, we have refused to give in to the hysteria, but we've also refused to say, hey, it'll all be okay. Because saying, hey, it'll all be okay is an optimistic, unbiblical cop-out. And so instead of saying, hey, it'll all be okay, don't worry about it, it's all fine, what we hope you have heard us say is, This is sad, sad, and it's serious because people are dying, because all people die, and yet take heart, not because it'll all be okay. No, take heart because our hope is in the God who raises the dead. You see the difference in that? One of them's optimism, right? And Christians don't have any patience with optimism. No, we are people who are filled with hope, not optimism, because it might not all be okay, but our God raises the dead. Now, as some of you are perhaps aware, um, we lost a member of our our Vista family recently, uh, a very kind and smart and mischievous and fun man named August. Uh, August was a good bit older than I was, but I got to know him in our Tuesday men's Bible study, and I just always had a soft spot for August in my heart. He was always so kind to me and to my little boys. He would always walk up to my little boys on Sundays and talk to him, so kind to my wife. And so when I got news uh, about a month ago that he had passed away, I you know, walked out on my back porch and just kind of let myself have a moment. You know, instead of fighting off the sadness, I just let myself feel it and had a good, you know, manly cry about it all. And at a certain point, uh, my oldest son, Wyatt, who's five now, he walked outside. He saw that I was upset and he asked me what was wrong. And in that moment, I, I felt this impulse that I think every parent has felt and, and probably just every human has felt where I I wanted to protect Wyatt from the sadness, you know, and I wanted to avoid talking to a five-year-old about death on a Wednesday evening. And so just as I was about to tell him, oh, buddy, it's, it's no big deal, you know, there's just some cedar, you know, allergies going on here. Just as I was about 
to say that I heard this voice inside me. So I often just tell him the truth. Just tell him the truth. He, he can handle it. He really can. He can handle it. So I said, oh, okay. Well, buddy, um, daddy's upset because one of daddy's friends died. And Wyatt, bless his heart, you know, he, he didn't like break down in existential agony. Like, oh my gosh, he died? People die? Am I going to die one day? Oh my God, dad, I don't want to die. What does death mean? What does it all mean? Is it nothing? Is there something after? He didn't do that. Nor did he just, you know, quickly divert the conversation to something that he would have found more pleasant like frogs or bugs or Batman. Instead, he just, he just looked at me. He walked up to me and gave me a hug and he said, daddy... I'm sorry that you're sad. And that's it. And a five-year-old, a five-year-old has a certain, a certain bravery with reality that many adults lack. And it's a bravery that we see exhibited most of all in Jesus. One of my favorite verses in scripture is Hebrews 2 verses 14 through 16. Here's what it says. So since the children have flesh and blood, he, Jesus, too, shared in their humanity so that through death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. And so we're told that in order to save us, Jesus shared fully in our humanity, which means that God knows what it's like to be a human. Have you ever thought about that? God knows what it's like to be a human. In Hebrews 4, we're told that Jesus can sympathize with our weaknesses. You name it, Jesus can sympathize with it because he knows what it's like to be a human. In Hebrews 5, we're told that Jesus offered up these heartbroken prayers with loud cries and tears because he knows what it's like to be a human. And most of all, notice that Jesus destroyed the power of death through death so that we no longer have to be afraid of death. All that to say, Jesus has shouldered the full weight of reality so that none of us ever have to shoulder it alone again. And so as our friend Job sits in the ashes here at the end of chapter two of what was once a beautiful and blessed life. The first thing we need to do is pull down a chair and sit down beside him. It's to sit in the ashes is to accept that there ain't no getting out of life alive, man. That's a good tattoo to get. There ain't no getting out of life alive because you know, maybe it'll be coronavirus. Probably not, but maybe, or maybe it'll be cancer. Or maybe it'll be a skydiving accident. I don't know. We can't be certain what it will be. But we can be certain that it's going to be something. Sooner or later, life is going to break you. I don't know who you are, but I know this about you. Sooner or later, life is going to break you. Sooner or later, the earth will be swallowed up by the sun. And so the invitation deep at the heart of the book of Job. The invitation deep at the heart of Christianity is to make our peace with this beautiful, terrible world God has made. It's to let ourselves feel its soaring joy 
and its deep, deep sadness is to let Jesus create in us a faith that is fierce instead of fragile because it is a faith that has been forged in the furnace of reality. All that to say, um, it's not all going to be okay. And that may be an odd thing to have your pastor tell you, but it's the truth and you need to hear it from me. It's not all going to be okay. But that's okay because we're not pessimistic or optimistic people. No, we're realistic people who are filled with grief and hope, but especially hope. Let's pray together. Gracious God, it is a wild world we live in. Right now, somebody somewhere is welcoming a baby into the world. And right now, somebody somewhere is burying a loved one. And sometimes it just all seems like a little too much. And so we look for ways to cope. We tell ourselves these pessimistic and optimistic lies about you, about ourselves, and about this world that you have made. But you, oh God, you are perfect truth. And you will not rest until we have known and accepted the truth that will set us free. You took on flesh and you lived among us, which means you know what it's like to be a human. And so we pray that you would use the pressure of this strange season to refine our faith and move us toward the beautiful truth of the gospel. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.